Hello and welcome to Occupied Thoughts, a podcast brought to you by the Foundation for Middle East Peace. I'm Laura Friedman. I'm the president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace. Today is June 4th, 2021, and it is my pleasure to have with me today Dr. Maha Nassar. Dr. Nassar is associate professor in the School of Middle Eastern and North African Studies at the University of Arizona, which is my alma mater. Uh, she is a cultural and intellectual historian of the 20th century Arab world with a focus on Palestinian history. And she is the author of the book, Brothers Apart, Palestinian Citizens of Israel and the Arab World. Her analysis and opinion pieces have appeared in numerous US-based publications, including the Washington Post, The Forward, and The Hill. And you can find links to a lot of those on the landing page for this podcast on our website. So just want to dive right in. Thank you, Dr. Nassar, for agreeing to be with us today. It's a, it's a busy time. So we, we really appreciate you being here. Thank you um, for having me. I, I, I'm so excited. I'm like going to just dive right in. Um, I, I like have a long list of things I want to ask you. I've tried to pare this down because we're going to try to keep this to 30 minutes. Be tight. Sorry about, sorry if I seem all over the place with my questions, but just diving right in. So Palestine has been very much in the news in recent weeks, obviously. One thing that seems to be becoming clear is that the discourse in the United States is changing when it comes to Palestine. We're, we're seeing people talking about this a lot and we're witnessing this ourselves on social media, in the mainstream media, and even in voices um, from within the halls of Congress. So uh, can you talk about what this changing discourse looks like? Sure. So I think it helps to maybe go a little bit further back in the past. And I've been thinking a lot about 2014. So in the summer of 2014, seven years ago, uh, Israel was bombarding Gaza for 51 days. And again, it was in the headlines and in the media. And I remember specifically then Senator, still Senator Bernie Sanders had a town hall in Vermont. And he, along with all the other senators, Republican and Democrat and independent, were all at that time insisting that Israel has a right to defend itself, that Hamas rockets are terrible and so forth. So at this town hall, a constituent stands up and says and asks a question and says, why are you only condemning Hamas? Israel is imposing this huge blockade on Gaza, depriving Palestinians of basic human rights, bombarding Palestinians, killing them. So why only focus on Hamas? And Sanders, it might be hard for us to remember this now, but back in 2014, Sanders doubled down. He doubled down on his condemnation of Hamas doubled down on the idea that Israel had a right to defend itself and got testy when constituents pushed back against that idea. So I think what's happened since then, between then and now, uh, I think we can kind of group into three categories. The first category has to do with the tireless efforts of Palestinians themselves to raise awareness about their conditions and the conditions of their fellow Palestinians in the West Bank, in Gaza Strip, in Jerusalem, in Israel for decades now. So we're seeing the fruits of that labor over the last few years, but it's important to remember that it goes back for decades. For Palestinian Americans in particular, there was a, uh, a spike or a rise in pro-Palestine activism, especially around the year 2000, around the time of the second Intifada. A lot of it was done by college students. A lot of it was done under heavy surveillance and, um, and punishment, frankly, from authorities. They were put on blacklists. They were, uh, attempts were made to deny them employment over the last 15, 20 years. But nonetheless, I think their efforts have paid off in part because, and this brings me to my second reason, in part because there's also been, especially over the last decade or so, a growing recognition in the US, particularly among people of color, but more broadly, 
uh, a recognition that you cannot solve intractable problems without focusing on the structural roots of those problems. So structural oppression, structural racialized oppression and violence that usually doesn't make it into the headlines. But what we do see in the form of spectacular violence, whether it's in the form of protests and so-called riots here in the US, or whether it's in the form of rockets coming out of Gaza, that those are the effect of structural violence rather than causes of violence. And that's been due to the efforts of lots of organizers and activists and intellectuals and journalists, particularly in the Black American community and other communities of color. So those are two kind of parallel structures that have been emerging. And we saw them converge, particularly following 2014, where you had the Israeli bombardment of Gaza, and then you also had the Ferguson uprising and the suppression of that. And so that culminated in a renewed Black Palestinian solidarity movement. You had delegations of Black American activists going to occupied Palestinian territory and seeing what structural violence looks like there and seeing both the parallels, but also the distinctions. So that's been also emerging um, in the activist community over the last six or seven years. And that brings us to the third element that I think is important, which is the changing political landscape. And the fact that particularly progressive candidates who wanna run for office and win office no longer need to pay tribute to the gatekeepers and the, and the uh, fundraising gurus of the democratic political establishment. And so they're able to do grassroots fundraising. Many of the newest progressive candidates came out of grassroots organizing, came out of activist spaces where those conversations were the norm, conversations around structural violence, around racialized forms of oppression. And so they brought that language with them to Congress because they weren't beholden to big ticket fundraisers and uh, think tanks and so forth. So I think those are the three main reasons why and how we're seeing the shift is Palestinian political activism, bringing awareness about Palestinian experiences, coupled with more grassroots political organizing in the US recognizing structural oppression, along with the changing political landscape that allows these conversations to come into the halls of Congress. Thanks, that's, that's really, um, that's very clear the way you lay it out. I find myself thinking as you're talking that another piece of it, thinking from the Israel-Palestine sort of policy perspective, is that if for years, Palestinians and Palestinian Americans were making the case for rights and justice and face this wall of there's a peace process, there's a peace process, there's a peace process, um, as that wall has just shattered, there is no pretense of a peace process and the Israeli government um, is increasingly open in its sort of greater Israel desires. Um, it's sort of like Palestinians have been saying the same thing for 20, 30 years or more, but it's taken seriously now, they're able to be heard in a way where they would be just automatically marginalized or discredited before because it didn't fit into what was a really comfortable narrative that absolved people of having to listen to their, their grievances. Um, yeah, I think you're absolutely right. So I think another piece of that changing political landscape uh, is and was, especially over the last five, six years, the growing partisanship divide with regard to Israel-Palestine, as especially during the Trump administration, as Trump and Netanyahu uh, embraced each other ever more tightly, more and more, particularly, I would say, liberal supporters of Israel, liberal Zionists and other liberals who were comfortable in that peace process narrative, 
could no longer really abide by it because it was so blatantly obvious that there was no peace process, that Israel, Israeli leadership wasn't desiring peace. And so that allowed people to listen to what Palestinians have been saying for decades. Yeah, I, I, it's, it's, it's such an interesting sort of confluence of, of pieces. The other piece that I've spent a lot of time working on is the free speech part, mm-hmm. um, where you, you know, I've ended up having a lot of conversations with people who probably have spent their entire professional careers trying to steer clear of Israel-Palestine, but working on things like civil rights, which includes free speech, and suddenly they're finding themselves, you know, if you're not going to defend free speech on Palestine, then stop pretending you care about free speech. It's been really interesting seeing people sort of forced to, to deal with an issue they would have, they preferred to have excuses to not deal with for so long. Absolutely. I think you're um, exactly right. Yeah, it, it, it's, there's there's so many pieces of this. I, I want to, to direct you though, into something that you've done a lot of work on, which I don't think really anyone else has at this at the level you have as a scholar. So I think, and you've touched on a little bit in your first answer, I think intuitively, a lot of us sense that the changes we're seeing today with respect to discourse on Palestine, that these changes are connected directly and indirectly to other shifts taking place in American society. In particular, I'm thinking of the the growth of grassroots support for embrace of identification with the struggle for for black lives and, and black rights in America, which I think a lot of people like me just hadn't even really thought of, we thought this was really largely done. We just weren't paying attention. There's been that moment of like, you know, holy crap, um, I wasn't paying attention. So you've done research into the longer history of black Palestinian solidarity. Can you help us understand that history and how it relates to what we're seeing today? Sure. So I think the first thing that we all have to remember, and it seems kind of like an obvious statement, but it's worth repeating, which is that Palestinians have a very, very, very long history of knowledge about and experience with state-sanctioned racialized violence, because it predates Israel. Remember, the British mandate over Palestine was established about 100 years ago now. And the British, as all imperial powers were, you know, want to do, uh, imposed law and order through very brutal forms of violence and very racialized and in a very racialized way. So even um, in the 20s and 30s and 40s, Palestinians understood that their oppression was tied to a broader global, broader global dynamics that were part of the British Empire, part of French imperialism and other forms of imperialism. So as far back as the 20s and 30s, Palestinians were paying attention to other forms of colonization and anti-colonial resistance. And that included coverage of early Black American resistance to forms of colonialism. There is, in in an academic article I wrote, kind of a little known episode. So back in the mid thirties, when Italy was under fascist rule, it invaded Ethiopia. Ethiopia at that time was the only independent Black African state. And so many African-Americans inspired by Marcus Garvey and others looked to Ethiopia as a kind of symbol of Black sovereignty. So the fact that it was being attacked by Italy meant that sort of attack on Black sovereignty. So you had solidarity movements with Ethiopia that were then covered in Palestinian Arabic newspapers of the 1930s. In a, in a kind of way to uh, as praising them, as drawing attention to them, and also drawing attention to the kinds of race-based oppression that Black Americans were facing in the form of lynching and other things. After the State of Israel was established, that, that process continues 
uh, particularly among Palestinian citizens of Israel, which I focus on in my research. Um, and this is tied to Cold War dynamics in part. So the Arabic newspapers of the Israeli Communist Party in particular link racialized uh, anti-Black violence in the US to broader imperial dynamics abroad. And at the same time, another overlooked period of American history or another overlooked um, dynamic of American history is the rise of Black internationalism, going back again to the 30s, 40s, 50s and onward. So Black internationalists like Malcolm X and then later on the Black Panther movement and Black power um, activists in turn look to Palestine as a symbol of uh, imperialism and anti-imperial resistance and anti-colonial resistance. So there's a much longer history that then continues into the 70s with the rise of the Black Power Movement, with Palestinian revolutionaries also looking to a Black, uh, Black Power Movement. In the 1980s, they joined forces in the anti-apartheid movement, particularly here in the US. You had a rise of Palestinian immigration to the US. So they were, were organizing with Black American organizers against apartheid. So there's a, there's a long history there. It, it's it's something that I think is so little understood by a lot of us. I, I'm fascinated by this. I was actually listening to you thinking, I hope you write this up at some point in a non-academic article for the for the world because you know I keep seeing for people who are who are threatened by the the by intersectionality by the by the by the 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 common cause being made by various populations, including um, people who are working for rights of blacks in America and people who care about Palestinian rights. And they, they, I've seen it argued that this is like a hijacking of, mm -hmm. of, of the, the movement in the United States for black people by Palestinians. And, and I know that not to be true, but, but you, you put so much meat on the bones. I would, I would love to read more about this and I suspect a lot of people would benefit from us. So no pressure, but more work for you. Um, I'll so, add it to the list. Exactly, add it to the list of important things that need to be written today. Um, so, so sort of moving more into the current moment. Um, in 2019, you'll remember this well, there was a kerfuffle. That's my favorite word to use for this. There was a kerfuffle in Congress over comments made by Ilhan Omar that some, actually it was a tweet initially that some sought to portray as anti-Semitic, a, a portrayal that I should be clear, I reject and I've written about this. Um, looking at that controversy, you wrote a really powerful piece in the Washington Post in March, 2019 entitled, what support for Ilhan Omar tells us about the left. And it was subtitled, The Rising Tie Between Black Activism and Pro-Palestinian Advocacy. And I recommend people read it for themselves. It's a great piece. In that piece, you explained about Representative Omar's entire political platform being, and I'm quoting, part of a push from the left to develop a more robust foreign policy vision that stresses peace and dignity, not just for Americans, but for all. And you said that, quote, those shifts have opened the door for Black Palestinian solidarity activists to gain a greater foothold in American political discourse. Um, words that I found very inspiring at the time and which have clearly proven to be prescient, um, which makes me even more, more eager to bring out the crystal ball and ask you, um, where do you see the current shifts in the US discourse on Palestine going in the future? And what do you see, um, what do you think will be the role of black Palestinian solidarity? And to add more to that, um, do you see a path forward in which the trends that we're seeing now and the changing discourse will catalyze or can catalyze change in actual policy? All great questions. So let me take them one by one. So in terms of 
future trends. I think uh, we've seen over the last few weeks how those shifts have accelerated since 2019 in terms of the discourse around Palestinian rights and around the uh, mobilization around Black Palestinian solidarity. We've seen a number of professional organizations, activist organizations, academic organizations come out in strong support of Palestinian rights. This is new, this is not something we've seen in previous um, you know, escalations of violence. And what it tells me is that the, what was considered uh, sort of marginal left progressive on the side, in 2018, 2019, has moved more thoroughly into the mainstream. And what I mean by that is that that shift from the peace process, both sides rhetoric, to an awareness that Palestinians are under occupation and are facing structural forms of violence that we can't just both sides this, that's, that's a shift to the mainstream that we've seen that hasn't that wasn't there before. So in that sense, I think it's really important. In terms specifically, more specifically of Black Palestinian solidarity, I do think we're going to continue to see a rise in organizing and a rise in an awareness about how the two sets of repressions are related to one another. They're not the same, of course, but they are certainly related to one another at a structural level. I think we're also going to see, you mentioned foreign policy, we're seeing more and more, not just among Black activists or among Black Palestinian solidarity work, but a broader conversation that you have documented quite well around questioning previously held uh, taboos, right? Calling out taboos around foreign spending, around, um, around spending around warfare, right? So-called defense spending, which is not defense usually. Um, and it's coming at a time, especially coming out of this pandemic, when more and more people are saying, well, why can't we afford Medicare for all? Why can't we afford affordable housing for people who are on the verge of eviction? What is it that we're spending? Where, where, where is our tax money going to? And so we're starting to see more and more people question the billions and billions of dollars that we spend on defense. And I think that military spending for Israel will inevitably be folded into that conversation. It's still not quite there yet, but I think it's a matter of time before that question becomes part of a larger discussion around our priority spendings. In terms of policy, changes in actual policy as opposed to rhetoric or discourse, I think the jury is still out. As we said a little while ago, the changing political landscape is such now, and we've been talking for the most part about changes in the Democratic Party, changes in liberal circles and progressive activist circles, we haven't yet talked about what's happening on the Republican side. On the Republican side and in conservative circles and on the right, they've doubled down on their support for Israel and on their support for the most extreme right-wing elements in Israel. The elements that no, not only don't want to negotiate, but the elements that don't want a Palestinian state at all, that don't want rights for Palestinians at all. And so, and they've doubled down on that. If you look at Ted Cruz, if you look at all of you know, major Republicans, over the last few weeks, they've doubled down on their unwavering and uncritical support of Israel and have tried to portray even the milder criticisms of Israel that come out from um, more centrist Democrats. They've tried to portray them as you know, an abomination. So a lot of the question about policy change, a lot will depend on, will depend a lot on 
essentially who's in charge, which parties, which party is in charge in the coming years. If it's on the Republican side, there's no chance. If it's on the Democratic side, if Democrats continue to hold power, then there's a chance. Uh, but it's, again, it's not clear cut. What's interesting to me, what's been really interesting to me is actually to watch the centrist Democrats and the Democrats who have ongoing political aspirations. So the other day, somebody asked me what Kamala Harris's take on all of this has been. And it occurred to me that I hadn't seen much from her one way or another. So I went back and scrolled through her um, Twitter account, her vice president, like the official one, to see if she said or did anything. I found one tweet in which she met with um, King Abdullah II of Jordan, and they talked about a ceasefire and uh, reconstruction aid for Gaza. That's it. Kamala Harris was a stalwart at APAC for decades. She would have been one of the ones who a few years ago would have insisted that Israel has a right to defend itself. So the fact that she's hedging, I think is really interesting. Yeah, I, I agree. I think you're absolutely right. The, uh, the relative silence or extreme caution from, from a lot of the centrist Democrats has been, been striking in this round of, of, of crisis. I will add, you know, going back to the, the previous part of our discussion about the relationship between Palestinian rights activists and, and black activists in the United States, it, it, and I'm sure you've noticed this, but it was really striking to me going back to the initial, the attacks against the Women's March, the attacks on Dream Defenders, the attacks on BLM. I, I don't think it's coincidental that some of the most virulent attackers against Palestinians are also the same people who are the harshest and most eager to attack um, grassroots black activism in the United States and being able to tie them together I think has been a, a there, there's been a, a convenience for them in that, but it also really does lay bare the values gap um, between progressives and these people. And I think it's something that maybe mainstream Democrats are only beginning to contend with, but it really was brought out. There was one tweet um, early on during um, what was happening, I think even before the, the, the shooting, um, the, the rocket started you know, between Gaza and Israel, when it was just you know the horror show in Jerusalem and Sheikh Jarrah, where you had a lot of comments coming out from a lot of members in Congress, including people like Rashida um, Tlaib and Ilhan Omar. And at one point, Mark Pocan, who is a white male Democrat, tweeted out, you know, it's funny, I seem to be able to get away saying, this was the essence, not these words, but he basically tweeted, I can get away with saying these things, but when it seems like when other people say them, you know, it's, you know, you, they get accused of being, you know, because you have, you have Republicans calling them like, you know, the Hamas squad and stuff. And, and it, it's so clear that, that it, it's easier and, and very convenient to attack people of color, particularly women of color, particularly women of color who are Muslim, right? And, and, and sort of draw separate categories of who's allowed to criticize. Um, I think that that really is gonna be an interesting challenge. For me, that's a challenge that progressives have not yet figured out how to deal with sufficiently, which is you need to take it on directly. Yes, you do need to take it on directly. What was interesting about some of that, those attacks as well is that even someone like Steny Hoyer, who again has been a stalwart pro-Israel Democrat for decades, when APAC came out with an ad along these sort of horrible racist lines, Steny Hoyer had to go come out and call out APAC for their, for their racism, for their misogyny, for their unfair attacks. And I'm sure that was a very awkward thing for him to do. And yeah. so what's going to happen is that the Republican kind of over the top attacks are going to force Democrats, particularly centrist Democrats to pick a side 
Are you going to defend your fellow progressive Democratic women who are- And your values. And your value, well, okay, and your values, your purported values, or are you going to side with the Republicans? And so the partisanship, which is why APAC, I think in particular is very worried, the APAC leadership is really worried about the partisan divide that's growing. And you have groups like Democratic Majority for Israel that want to reclaim a kind of bipartisan support for Israel. And I just don't see it happening. Well, and, and, and DMFI makes it harder for themselves when they do things like attack veteran female leaders in the party for like anti-Semitism because they don't exactly hew to DMFI's line on, on defining anti-Semitism. It's interesting watching what constitutes an overreach because we are starting to see some overreaches. All right, we're getting towards the end. I wanna ask you one more question. And so this is just something that I'm fascinated by. Last year, you wrote a piece in Plus 972 Magazine, which is an Israeli online, Israeli-Palestinian online blog magazine, which people should check out online. Um, you wrote a piece regarding the absence of Palestinian voices in the US media. And you, got, you went beyond the, gosh, it seems like there aren't a lot of Palestinian voices in US media to actually doing the research and, and, and publishing a lot of your data. So your conclusion was, it doesn't just seem like there aren't a lot, there aren't a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, so is this changing? It kind of feels like maybe it is. Um, and if it is changing, why do you think that's happening? And what role do you think that has in what seems like a changing in the public discourse on Palestine? Great question. So I haven't crunched the numbers, so I can't say for sure, but it does seem like it's changing. I mean, in, in the span of one week, the New York Times ran three op-eds by Palestinian women uh, documenting their lives, their experiences, um, two of them talking about women, uh, a Palestinian American whose grandfather's apartment was bombed in Gaza uh, as part of the AP building bombing, another Palestinian woman who grew up in Gaza, and then a third, Diana Butu, who's a Palestinian citizen of Israel. What that tells me is that I do think things are changing. I think what's happening is that legacy media wants to try to keep up with social media because in social media, the landscape has changed dramatically. I mean, it was always different as compared to legacy media, but right now there is a growing appetite to hear Palestinian voices and perspectives and experiences. And Palestinians, again, they've been very eager to share those things for a very long time. There's a tendency among some to to describe the social media landscape as being hyper-partisan, hyper-divided, as being very antagonistic. I don't see it that way. What I see is more and more people wanting to hear the Palestinian side, wanting to understand the Palestinian perspective. And once they do, even if it's in the form of a 10 second video clip, they're horrified. They're absolutely horrified. And so that then means that the traditional both sides media narrative and the legacy media and the, you know, how shall I put this? detached op-eds from columnists who don't really understand what they're talking about, they seem and they they are recognized as being further and further removed from from reality. And so, you know, especially right now, I remember hearing a few months ago that subscriptions and viewership and readership for legacy media outlets declined precipitously once Biden was elected and inaugurated. So there is also a financial Um, uh, impetus in terms of wanting to attract younger readers, more socially avid, more social media connected readers. 
And that, and so it's a, partly about giving them what they want. It's also partly about being embarrassed by the lack of representation, not only of Palestinians, but of other communities of color. And I think those things are coming together to shift the media landscape in, in important ways. The last thing I'll say that I think is also important in terms of the shift in media landscape is to recognize the generational shifts that are happening as well. We tend to talk about you know, media consumers who are you know, millennial, Gen Y, Gen Z, and older and baby boomers. This, but the Gen Z in particular, uh, young people who are in their late teens and early 20s are on a whole other level in terms of their social media production, in terms of their savviness. If anyone wants to get a sense of this, just look at Teen Vogue, which used to be a fashion magazine. Like I used to think of it as a fashion magazine, but man, oh man, their articles are putting everyone else to shame. I agree. I started following Teen Vogue on Twitter a while ago. I don't remember even what issue they were covering and they were covering it better than everybody else hard news and and they've just been knocking out of the park ever since on the generational shift i also i want to give a shout out to you uh to people like you and and younger than you i mean it has been striking to me um watch seeing more palestinian faces particularly on 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 the the broadcast media and also listening you know people like nora arakat who's always been so powerful but you know, really in a defiant way, challenging even the framing that's brought to them when they're on broadcast media. Mohammed al-Kurd, who is just extraordinary. He's, you know, it's, it's a different generation, which is, is not just like, you know, happy to be on, like, thanks for giving me airtime, but, but saying, and your question is, is, is laden with, with misunderstandings or even with racism. And I'm gonna challenge it before I even answer it. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's been really, it, it's been quite, I, I think, a shock to the system for mm -hmm. media consumers in a really positive way. Um, so I, I, I hope we see, I hope we see you <laughs> uh, doing more of this because I think it's just, it makes a huge difference. Um, you know, the more people learn, I think, the, the more they understand that this, con this conflict and conflict is, is not a sufficient word. Is, is not as complex as it's made out to be. Mm -hmm. um, and it starts with actually listening and understanding. Um, so I wanna thank you so much, Dr. Nassar, for joining us today. And thank you for sharing your time and your insights with the foundation, our listeners. There is so much more I would like to dig into and unpack. And I'm warning you now, you will be invited back for future conversations. Um, so get ready. Um, I also want to thank our listeners for tuning in. And I want to remind people to subscribe to the Occupied Thoughts podcast. You can do so on iTunes, Spotify, or SoundCloud. That way you won't miss anything. And we are adding new content every week, including next week when I will be talking to Elizabeth Surkov of New Lines Institute for Strategy and Policy, and also with IMEU's Omar Badar. You can also listen to our podcast and find lots of great resources on our website, www.fmep.org. Um, and that is where you will find also some of the links to articles that were mentioned in this podcast um, with Dr. Nazar. So, and with that, I am going to let you go. I'm Laura Friedman, president of the Foundation for Middle East Peace, signing off until the next episode of Occupied Thoughts. Thank you. Thank you.